Well, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but uh, no matter what you're going through, no matter how much you feel like your faith is failing, He will hold you fast. What a powerful truth it is to know that even when you drop your $1,500 Apple computer, He will not let your faith fail because He will hold you fast, but He will not hold your computer fast. And that's why our hope is in heaven. Amen, Montreux? <laughs> um, turn to Luke chapter 23, if you would. Luke 23. We're going to look at verses 50 through 56 this morning in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. As you turn there, I want to just give you a reminder that this evening uh, and throughout the month of October, uh, we are uh, going on fall walks together. So that just means we're taking a walk through the neighborhood. So just simply show up at 6 o'clock right out on the the sidewalk in front of the lodge, and we're just going to go on a 30 to 45 minute to an hour walk through the neighborhood. Would love to have you. Would love to walk with you. What? Shout it out. I can't hear you. What if it's raining? Hmm. Is it supposed to rain this evening? If it's raining, no walk. Um, If it's not raining, walk. All right, Luke 23, verse 50 through 56. Please follow along in your Bible as I read and then as I preach this passage this morning. Now... There was a man named Joseph from the, from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. I want to speak to you this morning on this uh, title, Persist While Perplexed. Jesus is buried. That's perplexing. And we are called to persist even amid perplexity. Let's pray and ask God for for help as, as we study. Father, we ask that you would come help us right now as we look into this text, help me as I preach that I would preach your word. Help us as we listen to your word that we would receive it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus died and was raised. Amen? Well, what happened in between? 
Jesus died and was raised. Well, the old creeds tell us. The Apostles' Creed says Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The Nicene, Nicene Creed, which we read this morning, simply says he suffered and was buried. Now, God certainly had the power to raise Jesus five minutes after he died for us and for our salvation, yet it wasn't his plan to do so. It was part of his sovereign decree that Jesus would be buried. Yet we don't hear a lot on the burial of Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is the first message I've ever preached on the burial of Jesus. But it's not a simple uh, or Needless story. As a matter of fact, all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include the burial in their gospel with detail. Meaning, the burial is immensely important for the Christian. We need to understand the burial and why it matters. Go with me here on an imaginative journey. To the first century, you are a disciple of Jesus following Him. You found This one who you think to be the Savior of the world, as a matter of fact, he found you. You followed him, you sat with him, you've listened to him, you've embraced all of his teaching, you've sought to live it out, you love him. All signs theologically, biblically, and doctrinally point to the fact that this one is indeed the Messiah. Not even a week earlier, You were with him as he came into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the coronation of a king. You can't contain the excitement as you begin to realize the time is at hand. He is about to be lifted up in glory. And by Friday, he was indeed lifted up, but not the way you thought he would be. Jesus, by Friday, had been betrayed by an insider, denied by a friend, and lifted up on a Roman cross. Give me one second. Utter confusion. Utter darkness. I would, I would go so far as to say this. I think this day that Jesus was laid into a tomb has got to be the most perplexing day in all biblical history. Noah's flood, that would be perplexing, but not like this. A son promised to an old man, Abram. That would be perplexing, but not like this. 430 years in Egypt as slaves. That would be perplexing, but not like this. 40 years spent in the wilderness. That would be perplexing, but not like this. Captivity in Babylon. That would be perplexing, but not like this. 
This day that Jesus is buried for his followers would be utter confusion, utter discouragement, absolute disillusionment, perplexed. Question, how do you respond when what you expect doesn't happen? How do you respond when your dreams become like sand in your hands and just simply start to fall through your fingers? How do you respond when it seems as if God Himself has failed? A child dies. A friend turns their back on you. The community that you grew up in and with falls apart. Everybody's in jail or dead. Life is not what you thought it would become. Question, church, will you persist in perplexity? Now, I don't mean by that persist in being perplexed. You will be perplexed. That's life. You will be confused at life. What life throws at you. It's going to be strange. But my question is, will you persist in faith? In faithfulness before God, in obedience to Jesus Christ, even when nothing makes sense around you? The burial of Jesus Christ shows us that God's plan will prevail. And that we are called to persist in faithfulness even amid perplexity. So how do we persist? Number one, know that God's plan will prevail. Look at the text. There's a new character that comes up. His name is Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. In John chapter 19, we're told that this Joseph is a secret disciple of Jesus Christ, meaning he followed Jesus, but he was too afraid to let it be made known. In Matthew chapter 27, we're told that Joseph is a, quote, rich man, unquote. In verse 50, we're told that he's a member of the council. The council is the Sanhedrin. The very council that just condemned Jesus Christ. Yet he's a dissenter. He is the lone dissenter. And we don't know exactly where he was when they called for the vote. Whether he dissented publicly or whether he dissented privately and just simply excused himself. But he was the disruptor in the room who knew that this was not right. In verse 52, he asks for the body of Jesus Christ from Pilate. Rome had control of the body. No longer is this man going to be a secret disciple of Jesus Christ, but in his death, he's going to expose himself and he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Why does he do this? Better question is this, what is God doing in this moment? In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, we're told of the Messiah that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. 
Meaning, the Messiah, when he dies, is going to die like a wicked man, and he's going to be with the rich in his death, a.k.a. buried with the rich. Here is a rich man who comes. He's got a tomb. This is the burial of the wealthy in his day. God is at work in this moment. God is moving in the confusion. When, when, when you look around and everything that is you know, visible, all things visible with the naked eye, they don't, they don't make sense. You've got to know, church, that God is at work. In this moment, nothing makes sense to the followers of Jesus Christ based on what they can see. But if you could peel back and see what the angels see, the angels in heaven have got to be rejoicing in this moment as they see the, the plan of God unfolding as a rich man steps forward to take the body of Jesus. The plan of God is here unfolding. Let me show you a couple other points. First, Pilate agrees to it. God providentially moved in the heart of Pilate to say, yeah, take the body. Jesus dies, secondly, before sundown. Why is that interesting? Well, as we talked about last week, the crucified victims would often just hang for hours, if not days, until they finally died. Jesus had a very quick death on the cross. Was that not God's providence? That He would die before sundown. So that way we could have Friday, Saturday, and then resurrection on the first day Fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus would be in the grave for three days. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. After two days, He will raise, raise us. On the third day, He will raise us. John chapter 2, 19, Jesus Himself said, destroy the temple in three days. I will raise it again. Also, we see in the text that women witnessed the burial. Look at verse 55. It says, the women who had come with him from Galilee, these are his friends, they followed and, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Why, why does that matter? Well, one of the first accusations that come against the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that the women were confused, that they went to the wrong tomb, that they didn't actually know where Jesus was buried. And so here, even now, we see God providentially moving. God's planning for that accusation. And so he, he shows the women exactly where Jesus is. The point is this. Even though you can't see it, God is at work. Let me go on. He was buried in time for Sabbath. Think about this. Out of all seven days, he could have been buried. He was buried just before the Sabbath day. This takes us all the way back to Exodus chapter 20. God says, six days you work, one day you rest. That, that Sabbath day was the great day in which God's people said, we are not going to do work to provide for ourselves, but we are going to be reminded that on this day, we wait on God. 
Oh, how glorious, the mind of God, that some 1,300 years before this, when God gave the law of Sabbath, that God knew and planned that His Son would spend an entire Sabbath with His body resting in the grave. We see God providentially at work. The point, church, is this, that even though you can't see it, God is at work work. Is anybody with me? Let me use an illustration here of a a puzzle. Maybe you like puzzles. I don't like puzzles. I'm not going to throw puzzle lovers under the bus like I threw Lord of the Rings lovers under the bus a few weeks ago, but I just don't like puzzles. Uh, They they, they take uh, uh, patience, (laughs) meticulous uh, waiting process, Daily faithfulness that I just don't want to put into my fun time. (laughs) But some people like puzzles. Have you ever done a puzzle? You take this box, thousand-piece puzzle, you throw the pieces that are just all over the place, nothing makes sense. You look at the picture, and you start putting the puzzle together. Somebody said this once. They said, if you can trust the puzzle company to make sure that every piece is in the box to complete it, Can't you trust God that every piece is there for a reason? Look, church, in the last week, I've had a friend die from an overdose. The puzzle pieces don't seem to make sense at times, do they? One of our church members had a friend whose mother was hit by a car and killed this past week. Somebody lost a job. A best friend moved. A church closed its doors. Racism wreaks havoc in America. Violence is all over the place. I think of the MTA uh, uh, bus driver who, who Keisha knows, who was killed this past week. Violence is out of control. Somebody, a, a believer, a, a professing Christian, goes back to a life of sin. A parent fails you again. You are looking at all of these different pieces and you're saying, this doesn't make sense. Like I have an idea of a picture of where this is supposed to go, but as much as I look at the picture, I can't figure out how to put this puzzle together. Oh, and this is a billion piece puzzle, isn't it? Church, I've got good news for you. This is not your puzzle to put together. This is God's puzzle. And God is the creator of this puzzle. God made the picture that the puzzle is going to become, and He put all the pieces into the box. And there is not one piece that will be out of place. There is not one piece that will not fit into the beautiful picture of what God is doing in this world. There is not one piece that will be discarded because all things work together for good to them who love God. Now somebody ought to say amen. Amen. How do we persist in faithfulness while perplexed? Number one, know that God's plan will prevail. Number two, know that God's people will persevere. In the midst of perplexity, if you are His people, you will persevere. This is a promise from God. 
So Joseph, this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. It's amazing how much we, we, we know of him. The gospel writers give us a good bit of detail about this guy who really just kind of comes out of nowhere in the gospel story. He's from Arimathea. Nobody today knows where Arimathea is. But the original writers did. The original readers knew where Arimathea was. Most scholars say it's probably because there ended up being some 30-40 years later a church in Arimathea. And there was probably a man in that church in Arimathea named Joseph. This is likely a man that they knew very well as time went on. He was a rich man in the Bible. We're told this. Come 30 years later, great persecution in the church. A rich man who was at one time secretively following Jesus Christ didn't want to expose himself to the ridicule that would come with being known to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. How wonderful and kind God is to raise up a rich man to expose himself to all of the, uh, the brutality and the rejection of the world in, 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 in saying, look, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's likely as time went on with the persecution that if he was like so many other Christians that he would have lost everything in this world to follow Jesus Christ. We're told here in verse 50 that Joseph was a righteous man. That word is also used in Luke chapter 1, verse 6 of Zacharias and Elizabeth who are looking forward. They're waiting on the Messiah and they are called to be righteous people. It's also used in chapter 2, verse 25 of an old man named Simeon who was waiting for the Messiah and waiting, it says, for the consolation of Israel. And Simeon is called a righteous Man, this is not an actual righteousness, but a declarative righteousness. Meaning, those who are putting their faith in Jesus Christ, they're waiting on God. They don't know how it's all going to work together. They don't know how this puzzle is going to somehow fit together. But they are trusting in God. And God says, because of your faith, I am counting that as righteousness. Joseph is a righteous man because he puts his faith in what, he, what God has, has revealed. Verse 51, the greatest commendation that Joseph receives, the biggest compliment, his best character trait, it says this, he, he was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. That word looking is the word waiting, which means he wasn't going about trying to bring the kingdom of God with his own power on this earth. He did not trust himself to bring about the kingdom of God, but he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was looking for it with eager expectation. Now, he is perplexed, without a doubt. In this moment, he has got to be so confused as to how uh, God is going to in some way vindicate the death of Jesus Christ. Yet, in this moment, he still aligns himself with Jesus Christ. Think about that. His faith in God does not waver in this perplexing moment. In verse 53, it says he took the body. 
He, he took a, his own hammer and, and pulled out the nails with his own hands and brought the body down off of the cross. We're told elsewhere that he cleans the body. The blood and the sweat. This heart-sickening moment of, 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 of preparing the, this, this body of Jesus for burial. He then wraps the body of Jesus in white, a white sheet. In John chapter 19 39, we're told that he and Nicodemus, Nicodemus the Pharisee that was converted to Jesus, Joseph and Nicodemus took a hundred pounds of spices and anointed the body of Jesus Christ. This is a burial of a king. Nobody was buried with this kind of grandeur. Not even any king in Israel was buried with this kind of grandeur. My point is this, is, is in Jesus' death, Joseph of Arimathea is lovingly, generously, faithfully glorifying Jesus Christ. He buries Him in a tomb cut out in a rock. There would have been an opening about a yard tall in which you crawl down into and lay the body. We find out later, of course, a stone will be put in the, in, in the opening by, by Rome. Now, uh, verse 54 transitions to the women. Look at verse 54. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. Verse 55, the women who had come from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. These, these women, who are these women? These are, these are Jesus' friends. Luke talks about uh, faithful women more than any other Gospel writer. These women, we're, to we're told earlier in the Gospel of Luke, are the supporters of Jesus' ministry. How was it that Jesus actually had money? You ever thought about that? How did He eat? Well, He had missionary supporters. And they were all women who out of their own generosity, out of their own money that they were able to make, supported the work of Jesus' ministry. They are faithful to Jesus all the way up until His burial. There He is being laid and there are the faithful women watching where and how He is laid. Verse 56, it says, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. They are going to, just like Joseph, faithfully, lovingly, generously love the body of Jesus. Church, check this out. Joseph, nor the women, had any clue that that Sunday morning Jesus would rise from the dead. There is no indication here that anybody thought that this was going to be a very temporal burial. I mean, they were preparing for the long haul. But look, they glorified Him anyway. They didn't know how the puzzle is going to fit together. They don't know how this piece 
is going to fit with this piece. They don't know how all this mess is going to somehow get to the kingdom of God, but they glorified him anyway. And I've got to ask you at this point, will you glorify Jesus anyway? You don't know how this piece is going to fit with that piece? You don't know how this bit, bit of craziness in society is going to lead us to this? You don't know how all of this is somehow going to come together for the glory of God? You don't have to know. It's not your puzzle to put together. What are we called to? We're called to just glorify Him anyway. I've told you the story before of Horatio Spafford, haven't I? In, in 1873, he was sending his, uh, his, his family ahead of him to England for vacation. And he had to come later because of some business that he had to take care of. And while they were on the journey across the Atlantic Ocean, their, their boat hit an iron sail ship and sunk. All four of his daughters, Anna, age 11, Margaret Lee, age 9, Elizabeth, age 5, and Tanetta, age 2, all four of his daughters drowned in the shipwreck. His wife, Anna, got ashore and immediately uh, sent a message to her husband which read, Saved Alone. Horatio, when he received this message, jumped on a sail ship to head toward his wife, to be with his grieving wife. And as he's crossing the Atlantic, the captain called him up to a, to a bridge on the ship and he pointed off to the edge of the boat and he said, according to the maps right here, this is the place where uh, the ship sank, where your daughters died. Horatio then went to his cabin and he immediately wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, listen, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. No matter how dark the night is, no matter how bleak everything looks, no matter what life throws your way, glorify Him anyway. Isn't this what the psalmist tells us in Psalm 42, verse 5? Why are you downcast on my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet again praise Him, my Savior and my God. Glorify Him anyway. And then somebody says, well, you don't know my lot in life. Horatio said, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Look what the women do next. In verse 56, as our passage closes, it says, on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Listen, the perplexity of life never gives you permission to sin. How many people have fallen away because they thought God was going to do one thing and He ends up doing another? 
How many people turn on God because the puzzle pieces of their life don't seem to fit together? Like I said, there has never been a day in human history that is more perplexing than this day that these women are currently in. Yet they are faithfully obedient to the law of God. If there was any day where anybody would be tempted to say, forget Sabbath, I'm going to go get high. It would have been this day. If there's any dark night which would have uh, seemingly given somebody the blessing to breach the law of God, it would have been this day right here. If there was any disappointment that somebody faced that would give someone permission to be permissive, it would have been this day right here. If there was any hopeless situation that would have given somebody reason to rebel against God, it would have been this day right here. But why did the women rest? It simply says it was according to the commandment. Yeah, they glorified Him anyway. And check it out. They obeyed Him anyway. How do we do this? How do we have this kind of persistence? When I was a kid, we would go to an amusement park called Geoga Lake. Geauga Lake is how you said it. Geauga Lake. It was near Cedar Point, which you guys probably know about Cedar Point. We went to Geauga Lake because they had coupons. Cedar Point eventually put them out of business. As a kid, I, uh, my favorite ride was a ride called the Gravitron. It was like this barrel-shaped structure that you get into, and it starts spinning like crazy, and the centrifugal force on your body sticks you to the wall just as the floor drops like four or five feet, and you're just like stuck to the wall, the Gravitron. I loved it. The lines were short. I was probably the only person in the park that loved the Gravitron. So I would just ride it over and over and over, four or five times in a day when we would go there. And I learned something early on. Actually, there was this dude that rode the Gravitron. Like, literally, whenever we went to this amusement park, there was this man, a grown man, on the Gravitron. And, uh, and I watched him, and he would always be looking up out of the Gravitron, and his eyes would be following something. I learned something early on. A little trick so you don't lose your cotton candy on the Gravitron, if you know what I mean. And that is this, when everything's spinning, you've got to keep your eyes on something steady. And so I would find a steady point outside of the Gravitron, and as we're spinning, my eyes would be on that steady point. Church, I've just got to tell you, as your world is spinning in chaos, spinning out of control, how do we persist in faithfulness? It's the same way. We've got to look outside of ourselves. We've got to fix our eyes on something that is steady in the midst of the chaos. And church, we have a steady Savior in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says this in first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, there's my word, but not in despair. Why? 
Why can Paul say that? As the world, his own life is seemingly spinning out of control. I was going to try to save this for next week, but I've got to tell you what comes, and that is this. If you just look at the next word, Jesus was raised from the dead three days later at break of dawn. The Son of Man rose again. Paul goes on in verse 14. He says, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to Himself. If they, Joseph and the women, desired to glorify Jesus while He was dead, how much more ought we to glorify Jesus while He is raised and alive? Church, in the confusion, I just want to glorify Him anyway because I know that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Some of you are so perplexed by life's situations right now. But church, you can glorify Him anyway because God's plan will prevail. Amen? And so we ought to sing and we ought to stand and we ought to shout. I'm going to glorify Him anyway, whatever my lot. Whether my lot in life is delight or disaster or death. He's taught us to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Father, we thank you that we can sing this song. It is well with my soul because Jesus has made it well. You are the steady God who never fails, never falters. And we look to you in this spinning and crazy world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.